Good morning. We are talking about the gifts of position today. Again, a reminder that the categories I have placed these spiritual gifts in are not theological categories. I created them, and I created them with the intention of clarifying the purpose behind the gifts. I am fully capable of being wrong (laughs) as far as what category these may fit into. I've stated in the past that it's very likely some of these spiritual gifts could fit into more than one category, but I only placed them in one, in the one I felt best described the, the gift. So gifts of position. We talked about apostles, prophets, and evangelists. We began the conversation of pastors. We're going to continue that today. So looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop... He desireth a good work. There are various names for the position of pastor. I stated last week that pastor would be an interpretation of the phrase shepherd. The word bishop would imply uh, oversight, an overseer, someone who's, you might say, in charge. The word elder is used often in the church. In fact, uh, Paul tells Timothy in other passages to choose elders and to place elders, and elders plural. So let's get into this idea of plurality of pastors. Now, before we do that, I believe the word elder is referencing the experience or the age of a pastor. So you've got different dynamics of the position that we refer to in the Baptist church as just one word, pastor. But the dynamics would include experience, would include oversight, and would include caring for the flock. And there's three different words used to emphasize each of those, you might say, job descriptions. Now, we are going to talk about elders. We are going to talk about plurality of elders, but we are in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So it says here, uh, verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach. Now, teaching is a separate spiritual gift. So if there is the spiritual gift of teaching and the spiritual gift of pastor, I've stated already, I'm going to say it again, I believe there are Christians with more than one gift. I, don't, I wouldn't say that every Christian has more than one gift. I would assume that they would. I do not know that they do. I do know that they can. <laughs> because how can a pastor have the spiritual gift of teaching and pastor if he doesn't have both gifts? He must. And that's a requirement. We're told that he's apt to teach. If, if the man is not able to teach, then he should not be a pastor. Now, there is a possibility, although slight possibility, that the pastor doesn't have the gift of teaching but is functional in his teaching, that he, he has the ability to teach in the sense that he's learned it. He has a learned ability to teach. Uh, he can get his point across, but he's not gifted in it. And that, that may be the case. So maybe this man doesn't have the spiritual gift. He's had to work hard to get to that point. But in my opinion, and it is my opinion, when God is basically making it a prerequisite, I would imagine he would give him the gift to teach if he's given them the calling and the gift to pastor. Not given to wine, verse 3, not a striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, patient brawler, uh, not a brawler, not covetous. Verse 4, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? All right, that, that's, that's that oversight here. So bishop, he is an overseer. He is a leader. Now, a spiritual leader is one who serves 
amongst. Some said, well, you serve in front. Some say you serve behind. Uh, I believe both of them would be an um, a biblical approach to spiritual leadership. I believe true service is serving in the midst. You're not in front saying, follow me. You're not behind saying, go, go, go. You're in the midst of them, holding them up, encouraging them, spending time with them. You're not a distant, disconnected leader. You are connected, caring overseer. And verse 6, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Now, the word elder specifically implies age, someone who is older. But I don't believe that age is a requirement, and I'll tell you why. First of all, it's not in 1 Timothy 3 where there's a requirement for age. Second of all, the Apostle Paul tells Timothy to not let others despise him for his youth. Doesn't mean the guy was 18, but he's younger than an elder. And so if the Apostle Paul places Timothy as a bishop, as an elder, as a pastor, and his age didn't necessarily meet the full uh, literal use of the word elder, I think that the word elder is implying not just age, but also experience and maturity. And Timothy had that. He had, he had wisdom, Maddie says. I agree. He, he had been with the Apostle Paul. He had been on the mission trips. He had experienced a lot. He had grown a lot. And he might, he might, he might call him an old soul, someone who, who had the experience that age often brings, but he had gained it earlier than maybe most. So we find in this passage someone who is a ruler, verse 5, someone who is experienced, verse 6, and that ruler would be applied to bishop, and that experience would be applied to elder. And then we find in verse 2, given to hospitality. And that would be one who's caring, cares for the needs that God has, of the people God has placed in art. Cares for the needs uh, that God has placed in his, in his care. All three of the titles, bishop, elder, and pastor, you might say, are implied heavily in the prerequisites or requirements of someone who takes the, the, the position of pastor, bishop, or elder. So I would state very strongly that pastor, bishop, and elder are all referring to the same position, but they are titles used, although interchangeably, based on the culture of the church, the culture of the people you've been called to in the community, maybe based on the preference of the man who is the leader and says, well, I prefer pastor. Some might say I prefer bishop. Some might say I prefer elder, so-and-so. And I've known people who prefer all three. I mean, each of the three. I've, I've known some who, who say, no, no, we have elders in our church. Some would say, no, our, our early spiritual leaders are bishops. I've known these people. And some, they say, well, we're pastor. Obviously, most of my friends, most of the circles I would walk in would refer, prefer the name pastor. But all three are biblical. And I kind of crack, crack up in, in my head. I, I chuckle when they say, oh, no, we don't have pastors at our church. We have elders. I think, well, what do you think an elder is? <laughs> I actually asked someone that one time. I said, okay. Define for me what an elder is. And, and they started talking about what an elder is. They said, okay, so you're describing 1 Timothy 3. The, the word 1 Timothy 3 uses is bishop, not elder. But it's also the same requirements we use for pastor. Some people just have an aversion to certain titles. Probably it's attached to a previous religion they were in, a previous church that they were in. And that title brings up bad memories. And they think that anyone who calls themselves a pastor is a heavy-handed, cruel uh, monarch. Anyone, and then those who are pastors think, well, anyone who calls themselves an elder is kind of a wishy-washy, laid-back, doesn't-make-decisions, the church-runs-all-over-them kind of leader. 
And then some people think of, well, anyone who calls themselves a bishop is part of the Catholic Church or is some way associated. So we all have this aversion to a title, and we think that the other two titles are wrong, but only because of our personal experience or assumptions, not because the Bible calls them wrong. You can call yourself bishop, elder, or pastor. Are you following the requirements of 1 Timothy chapter 3? That's what I would want to know, not what you call yourself or what you ask people to call you. So let's talk about this idea of plurality of elders. It basically comes down to church polity um, in the sense of how does the church operate? There are various beliefs on how church leadership ought to operate within a first-century Bible-believing, when I say first-century, you know, um, application of how the first-century church did the things, that we would do them the same way, and Bible-believing, theologically sound leadership style. How should it look? All right, well, there are some who say pastor, and first of all, got to use the word pastor, and then the pastor needs to have complete authority, that if any authority is taken from the pastor, you are stepping out of the bounds of biblical leadership, that, that people are subject to the authority of the pastor, that people need to respect the pastor, in fact, give him double honor, the Bible says, except that phrase double honor is not referring to respect, it's actually, believe it or not, referring to pay. Uh, in that same text, it says that widows should be given honor, pay, uh, so they can survive, and a pastor should be given double honor. So whatever you were giving the widow, give the pastor twice as much. That doesn't necessarily mean the guy's rich. I wouldn't imagine much was given to widows. A single woman without kids, uh, you know, widowed. Uh, either way, the, the truth is uh, those who believe that church oversight would mean one man who has complete control over everyone's lives is in somehow biblical, doesn't know their Bible. Now, they might point to the passage where it says that the, the pastor, uh, you know, will answer to God in some manner. You know, the Bible doesn't say that directly, but indirectly, you know, the pastor has care for the souls of the people and, and will answer to God for those souls. And, and, and don't put the pastor in a position where he must answer to God in a way that would cause him to be uncomfortable, that would cause him to say, oops, God, I messed up, sorry. Don't put your pastor in that position, so do whatever he says so he can stand before God and say, God, here's what I've done with your people. And say it confidently and proudly. Except I think people are taking Scripture way further than uh, was intended. <laughs> way out of context. It is not my job to stand between you and God. That is Christ's job. He is your advocate, not me. The Holy Spirit prays on your behalf. I can pray on your behalf, but I'm not doing it to replace the Holy Spirit. I'm doing it to join the Holy Spirit. And the Bible is very clear when it states that you are priests, you are royalty, you are the family of God. We are not living in a Judaism, uh, Jewish scenario where the community goes to one man and says, pray to God on my behalf. That's Old Testament. We're New Testament. And so then people say, okay, if that's not the case, then it must be these churches that have a plurality of elders. They must be doing it right. Let me tell you how these churches look. And and. I am generalizing. Not every church even have pastors do everything exactly the same way. Not every church that has elders does everything exactly the same way. But there are patterns that you will find. So the patterns you'll find in churches who are run by elders are generally run by, you might say, a group of men, and none of them have more say than the other. Essentially, nothing gets done unless all agree. 
And how many could depend on the size of the church? The group of elders could be anywhere from three to 12. I mean, it it doesn't have to be just two or three. Uh, Smaller churches generally are, you know, three or four men, and it's generally churches made up of families and these men, and, and pretty much if you are a father and a husband and you want to be an elder, you're, you're kind of like given that position if you want it. It's, it's kind of like a, an idea of a bunch of Christian families coming together and saying, let's worship God together, serve God together, and lead our families together, which is kind of a beautiful picture, except it's not necessarily biblical, and I'll tell you why, and it doesn't really play out as practically well as you might in your head think it does. Because if, if they all have equal say, and one person doesn't like what's going on, then one person can stop God's hand from moving if, if that one person is not right with God. The real problem is this. Although some churches I've talked to who have elders, I say, what's the prerequisites? They turn to 1 Timothy 3 and say, yes, it's, it's 1 Timothy 3. Most of them do not. In my, in my experience, in my conversations, most elder-run churches are made up of men who may be good guys, but if I was to go over 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, and, and touch on these points, they would miss most of them. Are you able to teach? No. Um, tell me about your ability to rule your own children. How's that going for you? Well, they're kind of rascals. Okay. Tell me about the, the, uh, the given to hospitality. Are you a hospitable person? Well, I mean, you know, our family's kind of close to the belt. We, you know, we, we kind of private family. Okay, well, that one's off the table then. You're not, you know, hospitable. Tell me about the idea of not a brawler. Do you like to argue? Oh, I love to argue. Yeah, okay, well, then you're not that either. <laughs> so uh, it's just unfortunate that these churches that are elder-run have not just one, two, three. Sometimes their entire elder board is made up of men that are the opposite of these things. They are not, uh, they are not following these things. And so, of course, if you have leadership that doesn't display the, the theology of a spiritual leader in 1 Timothy 3, then you've got bad leadership. One is bad. Five is really his worse. And so just having a plurality of spiritual leaders doesn't automatically make you a good church. It's not the number of leaders that brings up the quality of, you might say, worship or the service. It's the sincerity and the spiritual quality of the leaders that I think brings value to the people, not the number of the leaders. I think, in again, my experience, I think that people who are drawn to elder-run churches like the idea of not just one person in charge because they came from the opposite side that I mentioned earlier, usually pastor-run, where it's one pastor, and if there is a youth pastor and an associate pastor, they're like far down the ladder as far as rungs go on authority. I mean, they may have some authority, but at any moment, it could be snatched from them, and they could be ostracized and thrown out of the church at any given time without even the permission of the congregation. And so they've come from that church. They've been burned by that kind of leadership. They've been hurt by the single, you might say, monarch pastor. And so they think, well, then you know what? Maybe the opposite is better, a church where there's three, four, five, or six guys keeping each other in check. I'll give you one illustration, and then we'll move on. Just because there's a plurality of leaders doesn't mean it's good. Look at our House. Look at our Congress. Look at our Senate. <laughs> Drives you crazy looking at them, right? There's hundreds of these people, men and women both. And hundreds of them uh, don't make it good. Now, there is another type of church leadership, and that is congregational. 
The congregational throws out the spiritual leader altogether. Again, I'm generalizing. They don't all look the same. But a congregational church or style of leadership would be the pastor, the bishop, the elder doesn't have authority. Essentially, we've hired a preacher, and the preacher preaches, and then we as the congregation, we make all the decisions. We decide the budget. We decide the ministries. We decide who teaches in these ministries. The preacher does not choose the Sunday school teacher. The preacher does not choose the, the style uh, of the building, the color of the paint. The preacher has no ability to make a decision regarding money, budget, or spending. Basically, he gets a paycheck, he shows up, he preaches, and he leaves us alone for the rest of the week. If someone's dying, we expect him to be there to preach. But, you know, that's kind of it, right? Congregationalist is you preach, we do everything else. Now, there are different levels of that, but that's in a nutshell. I don't see that at all. We obviously know there are bishops, elders, and pastors in the early church because they're attached to the early church quite often. We obviously know, according to 1 Timothy chapter 3, that these elders, bishops, and pastors have some authority within the church because of 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. So we know, I'm sorry, 5 and 6, excuse me, we know that there is some authority attached to that position. So we, I'm convinced completely congregationalists have it, have it all wrong. I believe the idea of, of these churches with elders, I think they want to have a, a solid church because they see in the Bible where there are elders, plural, and uh, some churches in the letters, when it's talking about it, talking about, you know, to talk to the elders or go to the elders, plural, so there's more than one. And I think these churches with elder rule, I think they have good intention. I think they want a biblical, biblically sound leadership style. They're just missing some important pieces. I think the one who has a pastor single monarch, I think that they claim they want the, the biblical approach and they use the Bible to do so, but they're twisting scripture to attain an unbiblical approach. And I believe that there is a lot of um, narcissism. I believe there's a lot of pride. I believe there's a lot of deception and manipulation within the hearts of these spiritual leaders who believe the best type the best style is one man in charge, and everyone are his subjects. I believe that there's a lot of issues in that man's heart and soul. So what is the style that would be the best approach to Scripture? Well, of course, it's the style that, I, in my opinion, we do here. I wouldn't be doing it. And that would be a combination of the congregation and the spiritual leadership. Not just one pastor, if the church can afford, but more than one pastor to have those checks and balances. It's not that we are elder-run where Pastor John, Pastor Jordan, Pastor Ethan, and I are all equal, equal and have equal say, and one person could stop the momentum of the ministry, but we are equally respected in our own group, equally respected by the church, at least that's our hope. And, and uh, the various levels of authority are not taken, they are given by you, the congregation. You have chosen, of the pastoral staff, which one has the final say. We have meetings. We meet twice a month. We discuss things. And generally, I can't, I can't think of many times where we did something as a church if one of the pastoral staff was against it. In fact, I can't think of any time that was the case. I can tell you, if there was a time where one is against it and the other three felt very strongly, we'd probably hold off, pray on it. And if they still felt strongly against it, we'd probably just say, look, then you, you just got to adjust. 
after we've prayed about it. But we would take some time and pause. And I think that's how it should be done. So there's some checks and balances there. But also the pastoral staff is checked by the congregation. The congregation does not necessarily have authority over the pastoral staff, complete authority, nor does the pastoral staff have complete authority over the congregation. The pastoral staff does have oversight, verse 6 and verse 5. The pastoral staff does have leadership. That word bishop implies it. But the congregation is made up of themselves, priests, and therefore the congregation has authority over the pastoral staff. And in our church constitution, you have the right and you are given direction on, if necessary, how to fire and let go of any pastoral staff member. If a pastoral staff member is living in sin, you don't have to leave. We should leave. And our church constitution gives you that power and that authority to do so. Also, our church constitution uh, requires that we meet four times a year for the pastoral staff to submit the choices we have been making, specifically financially, and to vote on major policy changes or vision direction so that the church is included and involved in the major decisions. It's not just one man telling everyone their marching orders. So that would be the position of pastor, spiritual leader, interchangeable terms between bishop, elder, and pastor. If you ever find yourself in a church later down the road and they call their spiritual leader bishop, I wouldn't walk out immediately. I would ask some difficult questions, and if everything lines up, then stay. Uh, I, I, would, I, would, I would encourage you to make sure no matter what that person calls himself, to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and ask them some hard questions about their leadership style and their family. How's your family? How's your kids? Well, that's personal. Uh, well, not according to 1 Timothy 3, it's not personal. If, if you want me to bring my family here under your spiritual leadership, I want to know how you did with your own. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell you. Okay, well, best of luck. I'm out of here. Look, if the, if the pastor's not willing to be transparent, as transparent as 1 Timothy 3 states, then you're in the wrong church. I got to tell you, no one's ever asked me that question. I wouldn't be offended if they did, but not one person in the 10 years I've been here and in the uh, 17 plus years I've been in ministry, not one person has asked me, uh, how am I doing with my children? But that would be a good question to ask. Okay, let's move on to the last uh, gift of position, and that's teacher. Now, teacher really could have been in more than one place. And I put it in teacher for a reason. I put teacher in the gift of position for a reason. It's not because a teacher is necessarily on the same level of authority as would have been the apostles or the prophets, evangelists, or even a pastor. But there is some level of authority in a teacher even in life groups that, that members automatically just attach. If you're teaching a life group, you are automatically thought as, as one who has authority of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, and, and Christians naturally give respect and Christians naturally seek counsel and advice from teachers who have been placed even over life groups. And that is why, as a church, it is important that even these positions of teacher are filled by people who are confident in Scripture and, and will give theologically sound, accurate advice. I think more people have been led astray by Sunday school teachers probably than pastors. If you were just to ask surveys of, of churches in general, not maybe just Baptists, but just all kinds of churches. More people have been given misinformation in the small group studies than they have from the pulpit. And that's because pastors are so busy and pastors are so consumed with their own tasks that they just want to put a warm body in the position of teaching. Whether that person can teach or not, no matter what that person will teach, there's no um, oversight of their material. 
There's no checking in on what's going on in that classroom. They just say, you're alive, you want to teach? Fine, it's yours, take a class. And here this pastor is wondering why the church isn't growing because essentially the people are confused. They're hearing one thing in life group, but they're hearing something completely different during the main service. They hear a strong view of Calvinism in the life group where the teacher is a Calvinist and and not just leaning towards it. They are fully in the camp of Calvinism. (laughs) And then they come to the worship service, and the pastor's not a Calvinist. He just didn't know he put a Calvinist teacher in position of one of the life groups. And now the people have to decide who's right. You say, well, they're going to choose the pastor. Not necessarily. You probably will find people are more closely attached to their life group teachers than a pastor who might be aloof. And I think that a lot of times the lack of growth in a church could be attached to the, the poor leadership uh, choices being made and who has been placed in positions of teaching, which is a form of leadership, even within life groups. So a teacher is someone who, of course, is going to take the Word of God and provide it to the people. That would be the specific, I think, goal and specific gift of a teacher is someone's ability to communicate clearly the truth of Scripture. So if you see point number one, we basically went through point number one, spiritual gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastors, teachers, gifts of position. They equip the Christian for a position of service and authority. The church of God has only one king, This king has placed spiritual leaders in his body for the benefit of the church. The king is not the pastor, the bishop, the elder, the teacher. It wasn't the apostle. It wasn't the prophet. It wasn't the evangelist. The king is Christ. We are servants of the king serving God's people, his church. A spiritual leader seeks to equip God's people with the tools they need to discover spiritual success. I'd like you to turn now to Ephesians, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Another reason I attached teacher to gifts of position, because in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we're given a list of spiritual gifts. We're given a list that I just gave you. It says in verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. There it is. So teachers is, is given in the same list with the others. Wife, verse 12, for the perfecting. That word perfecting doesn't mean to make you perfect. That word perfecting means to make you mature. For the maturing, for the growth of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the encouragement of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith. When will that happen? Not this side of heaven, which means my job's never done till I die. (laughs) As long as we are breathing, I've got a job to do. And my job is to teach, to encourage, to assist in the maturing of believers till we go to heaven. Because the unity, complete unity of the faith will not happen till we see Christ face to face. Verse 14, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight cunning deception In fact, that word cunning craftiness is next. Manipulation of men. Cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. I spoke with a a father of a family. This was years ago. And he says, Pastor Russ, we're looking for a new church. 
And uh, he says, the one we're at now, the, the pastor doesn't preach deep. The pastor pretty much stays shallow. The lessons, the messages are very fluffy. I mean, this was years ago. I'm, I'm kind of giving general descriptions. He may, he may not have said the exact words, but this is generally what he's saying, that you just don't walk away with much new information. He said, actually, I confronted the pastor. I went to him, and I asked, why aren't you going deep in the text? And the pastor's response was, well, I believe God has called me to a church of young believers. And so I don't want to go deeper than they're able to handle. Now, he may say that what I think is he didn't want to offend them with harder truth than they were willing to hear, I think would probably be the right response, but that's not what he said. He basically stated, I don't want to go deeper than they can handle. And so he says, this is a church of young believers, and if it's not a good fit for you, I understand. This pastor's job is to take young believers to a place of maturity. What is he doing? He is saying, if you are a mature believer, don't stay here (laughs) because we're not going any deeper. He's not doing his job. That father did leave, is going to our church now, not in this room, but that father is currently attending our church, had come here years ago. He said, I'm, just, I'm looking for a church that's going deep for my family, for myself, for my wife. He said, we really did love the pastor. We loved the people. They were beautiful people. We, we enjoyed our time there, but we needed something deeper. And ironically, I had, I had the same conversation with another parent, another father, just a few days ago, said almost the same thing. He said, we're looking for a church. We're thinking about coming and visiting you. As he just said, the church we're at, they're, just, it's, they're not going deep. And it was a different church. He said, the church we're at, it's just, it's just shallow truths. And he says, I want to go deep. It breaks my heart. There. I, I believe the world is telling us Christians are shallow. And too many, Christ, too many Christian pastors are believing that lie. And too many pastors believe Christians don't want to go deep. We're living in a culture that's fluffy, and, and, and if we go deep, we'll lose our, con- our congregation. No, if you don't go deep, you'll lose your congregation. Yeah, go, staying shallow, you may keep people. You won't keep, I think, God's people. <laughs> and if, you are, if they are indeed saved, you won't take them any further, and that's a shame. The job of this gift, the purpose of this gift, is not to just make people feel good. But verse 14, to keep them from staying in the state of childhood, spiritual immaturity. A spiritual leader ought to challenge you with truths that make you uncomfortable, with with biblical texts that cause you to consider, have I been doing this the right way? I'm not going to say it's the job of a spiritual leader to step on your toes. I don't really like that phrase, stepping on toes. It implies an intentional, like, hurting you to get you to think. I, that's not how I operate. But I get the idea. Preaching where you are uncomfortable, that I understand. And truth would make me uncomfortable if I wasn't living it. Truth would make me uncomfortable if I realized I had been on the wrong side of that truth. But if you just stay shallow and preach salvation every Sunday, I was in a church some time ago, where every Sunday the message was on salvation. Now, the pastor did bring other truths into the message, but salvation was preached every Sunday. And I asked him, I confronted him, I said, do you believe that your congregation is unsaved? He said, no, most of most of them are saved. Most are saved. I said, so then why do you preach on salvation? Because I was going to this church. I said, why do you preach on salvation every Sunday? Why don't you preach on truths that can assist the believer? He said, because at any time, an unbeliever could be here. 
And I want to preach on salvation so that the unbeliever is here, they'll hear it. And I said, but you've got believers that are here that you know are here every Sunday. (laughs) So you're preaching salvation for the unbeliever that might be here, but you're not preaching truths for the believer you know is here. (laughs) He didn't like that. We didn't really continue the conversation. He didn't want to talk about it. But that is a common thing. A lot of pastors, every Sunday is salvation for that one person that might be here unsaved. And yet, as pastors, we need to be preaching verse 14 for the believers we know that are here and helping them take that next step. In my opinion, salvation is, it should be taught and is taught here at this church, not every Sunday. And I'm not going to attach it to a message when it doesn't belong. If we get to a text that salvation is there, I will preach it. And if it's a special service like Easter, I'm going to preach salvation, obviously. But I'm not going to just bring salvation into every message because we have a church full of believers who need to grow and who need to mature. And that's my calling. Okay. Yes, Maddie. You are right. Maddie states that whether you're preaching on salvation or not, an unbeliever can be touched by the Holy Spirit. I agree with you um, that someone could be convicted of their sinful lifestyle and salvation wasn't actually preached. The Holy Spirit's taking what was taught and going further. Yes. Now we're going to look at gifts of provision. You can turn to Romans chapter 12. Let's look at another list here. Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Gifts of provision, I believe that these uh, gifts equip the Christian to provide for the needs of others. Many of these needs are practical, but some, I believe, are emotional. We are emotional beings, and God doesn't just want to assist or minister to the physically practical needs. He wants to minister to the emotional needs. Even some are financial, but all of them are spiritual in the sense of whether we are assisting someone spiritually Financially, emotionally, physically, it is assisting their spiritual condition in the end if it's done for Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophesy, prophecy, let us prophesy according to the proportion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering, or he that teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do it with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, He that showeth mercy with cheerfulness, let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. We've got ministry, giving, exhortation, and mercy. Now, there there are other gifts mentioned here that I just read that I'm not going to talk about today. And that's because I've placed them in a separate category. And I'll give you one example. Look at uh, verse, let's see here, verse number 8. He that ruleth with diligence. That word ruleth is attached separately from pastor, evangelist, prophet, teacher. Come on in, folks. Come on in. You have a seat. Yep. So attached separately uh, to what we have, what you normally see attached to a, what we call leaders. And here's what I believe is going on. That there can and should be other leaders in the church than just the pastor bishop, or elder, that I think that the danger zone is when you think the only leaders are the pastor or the pastor or the bishop or the elder. The safe zone is when you've got other people who've been put in positions of leadership that, that have a quality about them, that have a gift about them to lead, and they do so in the church 
with the pastor. In our church, we call them trustees. Some churches call them deacons. I don't like using the word deacons attached to rulers in the church because the word deacon literally means servant. I get you could be a servant leader, but the word deacon is not only attached to servant, but the job description of a deacon was, was to feed people and to assist those who were uh, struggling financially or struggling with health. And so I'm not saying a deacon can't be a ruler, but if we're going to assign a title here, we call them trustees. They are rulers in our church. And we have trustee meetings once a quarter. And the trustees, we go over the, the budget, we go over the finances, we go over major vision decisions. And if the trustees don't approve, we don't do it. So again, another check and balance in our church. Because we would be fools to say, yeah, we got three, four people with the gift of leadership, but now we're not going to use them in the church. Why not? Well, because they're not pastors. Who said they had to be pastors? <laughs> well, only the pastor is a ruler in the church. Who said that? God, where? I don't see it. What I do see is the gift of ruling, and it's not a pastor, so let's use it. But we'll be talking about that under gifts of protection. You'll see that point number five. So we're going to bump now to point number two, gifts of provision, dealing with the, the gifts that are mentioned in this text that fit what I believe this category. Let's start with ministry, the gift of ministry, which in other texts is called helps and serving. I believe that this gift is, is essentially a gift that uh, someone has where they naturally, or you could say supernaturally, love helping people and they want nothing in return. This is not the person that helps you so that you thank them. This is not the person that helps you so that you'll give them a pat on the back or a thank you card or, or tell people about how good they are. They help you, not even for the feeling that they get. They help you because they truly believe it's a calling and they do it for God. You see, some people help others because they feel good when they're done helping, and they're almost addicted to that feeling. They want, they want that shot in the arm of adrenaline, so they help somebody because they walk away, oh, I got that shot again. Let me help you so I can get that shot. That's not the gift of helping. That's selfishness. I'm not a pastor because of the shot in the arm it gives, it to, gives to me. I'm not a pastor because of, of the emotional highs or, or, and even lows that I experience. I'm a pastor because I'm called to it and I love God and therefore I do what God asks. Someone with this gift will feel the same way. I will clean. I will, I will go visit people. I will uh, be a, a, a help to people, not because of what I get out of it, because it's a calling to be a help to God's people and I love God. We see the next gift, exhortation. This is a gift that probably isn't used nearly as much in the church as it should be. That first one, ministry, I think is used quite often. Exhortation, not so much. Because the church just assumes the only one who should be exhorting, again, is the pastor. You know, have you seen a trend here? Basically, the pastor is all these gifts. <laughs> and that the church has none of them and the pastor has all of them. Ministry, that's the pastor. Uh, exhortation, that's the pastor. Teacher, that's the pastor. Giving, that's the pastor. Mercy, that's, well, no, maybe not the giving. Maybe the pastor said he's, that's the only one he's not. You guys are the givers, he's everything else, right? That's what it might be said. So it's just over and over again where, where I think that too many churches, too many Christians just assume that the pastor is everything and they are nothing. That is not true. A, a wise pastor will let other people use their gifts effectively so the church can grow. And a wise pastor will recognize he's not all the gifts. And a wise church will recognize the pastors, not all the gifts. 
So exhortation, what is that? That's encouragement. That's redirection. That's going to someone and saying, hey, I, I recognize you're struggling. Let me help you. I want to tell you I'm praying for you. I love you. I care about you. Give you a hug. That's exhortation. It could be verbal exhortation. It could be physical exhortation, that hug, that, flat, that slap on the back, that handshake. It, it could be um, emotional exhortation, having a conversation where they, they know you truly care about them. You're not just passing the time. And the pastor is not the only one that can and should do that. To be quite honest with you, I've known pastors who are horrible at this. They can't do this. From the pulpit, they can teach truth, and so the truth exhorts you. But one-on-one, like, they're not good comforters one-on-one. Like, they're not the one you want coming in and talking to you when when things are rough. They're going to make you feel worse, not better. And someone who has the gift of exhortation isn't necessarily going to make you feel better, but they're going to make you reach better. And I have to be honest with you, this is not one of my gifts. I can do it, but I'm not gifted at it. So why would I not allow others in our church who are gifted at this to do it better, dare I say, better than me? Because if they're gifted and I'm not, and I'm just functional in it at best, and they're gifted, they're going to do better at it. And so a healthy church allows those who are gifted in exhortation to exhort. That's a beautiful thing. And that's what we should want in our church is for people to use their gifts for the glory of God and not assume that the pastor is all of these. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for the chance to be here and to be reminded of the spiritual gifts and the truths that these gifts bring to us. I pray that we would open up our hearts to the calling that you've placed in our lives, not just mine, but all of the, me- the members of this church, that they would follow you in the gifts you've placed in them and that they would serve you with them. In Jesus' name, amen.